Hello, and welcome again to At Length. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Neil Stevenson is the award-winning speculative fiction, science fiction writer. His work is steeped in math, philosophy, technology, and science. His latest book is a meditation on living in a digital world, perhaps forever. His novel is called Fall or Dodge in Hell. Stevenson thinks a great deal about the future. He even holds the title of futurist in one of the companies he consults for, Magic Leap. But he is very much grounded in the science and technology of the present. Before he became a successful and multiple award-winning writer, he was the first employee of Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' rocket ship company. He did a lot of handwork and hauling, but surely working there kept him imagining the future. Neil Stevenson speaks at Town Hall 7.30, Monday, June 3rd, 2019. Some tickets were still available as of Monday, June 3rd. In the new novel, Fall or Dodge in Hell, the billionaire Richard Dodge Forthrast is left suddenly brain dead, but rich person that he is, Dodge's scanned brain ends up in an eternal digital afterlife. We talked on the phone. I hope you enjoy this somewhat rambling, but I think pretty interesting conversation with Neil Stevenson. Hello. Hello, Neil Stevenson. Yeah. Hi, Steve. Steve Share. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well. All right, so we'll talk for a little bit. I appreciate you talking to me for this podcast. Yeah. I know you're a busy man. Yeah, glad, glad to do it. I was just wondering if you're excited about this book coming out. Are you excited? Um, people always ask me that, uh, you know, about everything. So I guess <laughs> it's because maybe I don't convey a sense of excitement very much in my personal department. Um, well, I wasn't thinking that. I was just wondering if you were excited. Wondering, well... <laughs> To me, you know, excitement is a transitory state that um, doesn't last for very long. Uh, it's hard to maintain over a period of months. So I'm quite pleased that it's done. Uh, looking forward to uh, getting it out there, seeing what happens. It's always uh, interesting to see uh, what what transpires when a book makes it out into the world and people will start reading it. So. We shall, uh, we shall see. Have you been, in, have you been surprised in times past with a book's reception? Did it go in some other way than you ever expected? I think early on, the the first book that I wrote that actually um, was read by by a lot of people was Snow Crash, and um, when I wrote it, I. Um, I thought of it as a really odd, like, I'm just going to just go for it and write something that's really out there and bizarre and weird and put in some, you know, things I'm interested in and, and just see what happens because um, the two previous books I'd published um, uh, were, hadn't, hadn't really reached that many eyeballs. So I thought, well, I'll just go for it. And and it uh, ended up succeeding much more than the previous books had. So that that surprised me in a, in a good way. So Snow Crash was the third book that uh, that I published. The first one was The Big U. The second one was Zodiac. And then Snow Crash was number three. And it was the one that uh, that actually reached a larger audience for the first time. So, you know, my son, uh, he often talks about uh, that, that it'll be okay when we get old and die because we'll just upload our brains into uh, giant computers and live forever. What could go wrong? 
<laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> that, that's the that's the, uh, the central question of this of fall. This book. Were you having conversations like that with with, with people that are forty and thirty and forty years younger than you, and they were thinking it would just be great to live in a virtual world? Well, people have thought about it for a long time in one form or another. So even before there was the idea of digital, the digital afterlife, people had the idea of heaven or hell, what have you. So it's a, a thing people have thought about for a long time. Um, uh, I'm coming at it from the point of view of kind of some ideas that are bouncing around today um, in the tech world. Uh, and mixing it up with some older ideas from mythology and religion. What older ideas were you thinking about? Heaven and hell, those sorts of things, or other things as well? Pattern it shows up in a bunch of creation myths. Is um, uh, the world is brought into existence out of chaos by some kind of supreme being, who's sort of the architect of the world, and um, but. Uh, it doesn't go as planned. There's you know something that goes wrong, and then that can never be undone. You know, in the case of uh, uh, Greek mythology, there's a few things like that, but the kind of the, the classic one people know about is Pandora's box. Um, in the case of uh, the Bible, you've got um, the the Adam and Eve eating the uh, the forbidden fruit. Um, you've got Cain and Abel. Once that initial sort of uh, mistake gets made or bug gets introduced into the code at the very beginning, it just propagates forward and becomes part of the fabric of the world and of human nature. Um, and, uh, and you can't undo it. Uh, so um, I was trying to reach for a little bit of that in this book the modern tech stuff the techies are kicking around what are those concepts well uh there's a lot of disagreement of course about how brains really work and what consciousness really is um you know is the brain just a digital computer that could be flat out simulated uh with a big enough computer um or is there something between our ears that goes beyond computation? Um, if you do believe that uh, a computer simulation is possible, then how much information would you need to gather about a particular brain in order to boot up such a simulation? What kind of scanning process would be needed to, to gather the, the exact state of uh of a brain um and um and then how much computing hardware and network and memory uh resources would it take to actually make that thing run um so uh, all of that is kind of rolled in to the story in a way that i hope is is readable and fun and tell me something after all this thinking about it where do you come down on personally um I'm a, uh, I guess, a believer that um, evolution, 
finds ways to uh, make things better and optimize systems in ways that we only partly understand right now. And so um, the uh, my if I had to bet, I would bet that there are aspects to how our brain cells work that are attributable to uh, to quantum mechanical effects. That that doesn't mean I'm going all woo and saying that quantum this and quantum that and being mystical about it. But um, I suspect that um, brains may be carrying out a much larger amount of computation than uh, than people have estimated in the past. Um, so uh, I'm not trying to take a stand on any of that, particularly in the pages of this book, because I think it's getting a little bit into the weeds and it uh, would get in the way of just trying to tell the, the story. So I'm just telling the story in a somewhat broader way and trying to skim over some of those uh, uh, technical uh, issues. Mystical things. What are you in your 50s? You're in your late 50s now, right? Are you, have you, yep. as you're thinking about all those things profoundly changed since you first started writing or do you find that you're very similar to what you were thinking about in your 20s? I don't know about profoundly changed. I mean, um, uh, I think people find ways to believe what they want to believe, <laughs> and I'm no exception. I'm pretty uh, suspicious of anything that feels too woo um, or too convenient uh, when we talk about things like brains and souls. Um, I suspect that things are a whole lot more complicated than anyone really grasps. Um, and so um, I tend not to believe in anyone who thinks they've got it figured out one way or the other. Uh, that applies to people who've uh, come down firmly in a, a religious camp, but it also applies to people who've come down too firmly in a strictly uh, non-religious or a deterministic kind of mindset. Um, so I guess I'm kind of a eternal skeptic, agnostic doubter. Uh, and um, that takes different forms as the years go by, but uh, it's been pretty constant all along. Hey, uh, tease me a little bit. Dodge, your main character, billionaire. Uh, what do you think of him? I know you created him, but... Um... What what? Give me your uh, take on him as a as a person and a uh, and a virtual entity. Um, well, I like Dodge, uh, and um, um, I uh, uh, I enjoy writing him, um, and uh, uh, he's one of those people who sort of uh, I. I can't quite remember where the idea of that character came from. Um, uh, and I say that because sometimes, sometimes I can remember. So I'll say, well, this book needs a 
you know, character who's about, you know, yay old and, uh, you know, is going to do the following, uh, play the following role uh, in the plot. Uh, you're going to have the following relationships. And, and so it's all a little bit sketched out uh, in advance. And with him, um, he was one of these people where I just kind of started writing uh, with no particular plan or template in mind. And um, as a writer, those can be really interesting and rewarding characters if you follow if you uh, if you just let them live and do what they want to do, um, because um, after all, that's that's how humans really are, <laughs> right? Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, Steve Schur, Neil Stevenson, we're not we weren't created by novelists to, to serve a role in a plot. We're kind of finding our way yeah. uh, in the world and. Um, and so when you get a character like that that emerges, um, <clears throat> I, I think um, uh, if you kind of let them follow their nose and do what they want to do, uh, it, I hope it comes off as being a, a realistic and a relatable sort of character for that reason. Has that been new for you or has that happened with other characters and other books that you can remember? No, it happens from time to time. It's actually a pretty common uh, phenomenon that the um, the character that's dragged into um, without a plan ends up kind of taking over. So, I'm trying to think of examples, but um, you know, Sam Gamgee in Lord of the Rings. He's just the gardener in the, like the you know, he's following Frodo around, but by the end of the story, he's a way more interesting character than the person who's supposed to be the main character. Yeah. That's so a, it's a pretty common, yeah. Common, but interesting, isn't it? I mean, somebody like Sam Gamgee, they, they be, he, I mean, for him anyways, I don't know if it's true for other characters like that, but they either become the moral core or they become the, the antimatter, the, the, the opposite of the moral core. But yet they still have some kind yeah. of like uh, who am I thinking? Oh, Hannibal Lecter. He was a character yeah. that sort of exploded, right? Right, right. So yeah, he's, there's something about the moves that he makes, the decisions he makes, that smacks of being a real person. You know, it's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Um, you know, uh, and that suggests a kind of inner complexity that is uh what we see all the time with real people say do you do other art do you paint do you i don't know garden i don't know if that's an art but do you do other art i do i mess around with various kind of technological hobbies um but i wouldn't say that any of them rise to the status of art some, I was just wondering if there are other other ways that that sort of same emotional uh, um, uh, centering or emotional release that occurs with when a character emerges oh. full blown in other parts of your work working life. No, I mean I've sometimes I'll get lucky with something and 
and it it's just sort of a random hit where where okay that sketch that I drew actually has got some artistic value or that you know piece of woodwork that I made um, actually doesn't suck but it's not it's a different phenomenon because it's it's always a lucky accident when that happens as opposed to me systematically trying to practice an art form i see i was poking around doing research you know poking around i came across the long now foundation uh some guys that i really respect and have done some great work i love the clock for the of the long now that they've been uh, a project mm-hmm. they've been pursuing and it was neil stevenson selected books for the manual for civilization so you were invited other people have been invited to submit a list yeah. of books and, and yeah, you was one of quite quite a long list of, of people who were asked to do that. But that's a I I uh, I almost can't imagine wrapping my head around some of the uh, the notions. These this list is pretty. There's the Iliad. There's the Odyssey. Decline of the Roman Empire. There's also um, Thomas Hobbes, Newton, and then there's uh, Charles uh, Mann's book, 1491, New Revelations mm-hmm. of the Americas Before Columbus. Um, and mm-hmm. R- Richard Rhodes's book, the making of the atomic bomb and and the making of the hydrogen bomb. What uh, what was that like putting that list together? Was it hard for you? Was it easy? Um, it was actually kind of easy because, in a way, you know, the, the hard part of that is um, is reading the books. Uh, so if I had to start, if I had never read a book, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any books on my library shelf, <clears throat> then it would have been a lot of work. But uh, over the course of my life, you know, I when I read a book that that I particularly admire and has a big effect on me, I tend to get a hardcover copy of it, whether it's just a used copy or whatever I can get and put it on the shelf. And, um, so, um, so really compiling that list was a matter of looking at my bookshelf and going kind of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Any new books since 2014 that would go on that list for you? Well, I enjoyed, uh, Walter Isaacson's recent ish bio of Leonardo, uh, Da Vinci. Um, and, um, Ron Chernow's uh, biography of, uh, of U.S. Grant. So those are a couple of uh, of more recent ones that, uh, that I thought were pretty cool. U.S. Grant turned out to be kind of an interesting character from that book. He had much more nuance and much more political, um, progressive uh, policies that yeah. I had known about. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's right. It's exactly why. It was so interesting, right? It's like he's, you know, we get a certain pretty simple stereotype of him just, you know, in a conventional history class or whatever. Right. Um, But holy crap, was he a complicated, I mean, his life was like over when he was in his 40s. Complete loser. Um, And then then everything changed. It's like, you know, all it took was a war. What about those folks from the long now? I, I think it's interesting that you you were contacted by them. It makes sense since they're both they're futurists. You're a futurist, if you like that phrase. Uh, Ten thousand year clock. That idea of a clock being built that's going to tell people 
things about uh, buried dangerous materials, right? Nuclear waste, but also much more than yeah, that. Yeah, that's a di different different project, but related. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I've known those guys since the mid nineteen nineties. I think I first encountered them uh, at the Hackers Conference, probably in ninety four, ninety five, um, and. Uh, that was the first time I heard about their idea for the clock. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, um, it's, it's been an occasional conversation or exchange of, of thoughts uh, about it. Um, the uh, uh, so we've, you know, stayed in, in touch uh, and I try to, uh, uh, support what they're doing in small ways uh, when I get a chance. But you're somebody who thinks about the the, the far future, just like they are. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, uh, 10,000 years seems like a long span of time in some ways, but I was thinking about how we both live in the Northwest, how, how our, the European imprint on this area is 150 170 years mm -hmm. long now and you know the native imprint on this area was close to 10,000 years and and, right, and right. how they lived and how they on how they uh, interacted with the environment is something we we do need to sort of conceptualize that length of time and it's a uh, I think it's been yeah. a long time coming but we are doing it a little more now maybe what do you think yeah I mean not to not to pick nits with you but um well, uh, one of the things that uh, Charles Mann talks about in 1493, which is what happens after the yeah yeah uh, the uh, the Europeans touch down, is he talks about the spread of diseases that um, moved outwards from that initial point of contact and very rapidly covered all of the Americas. So within within a pretty short span of time, like way before white people reach various parts of North America, the diseases have gotten there ahead of them and wiped out just an enormous majority of the population. And uh, uh, so I think it's the case that when, I think it's, is it Cook who first, uh, the first white guy who, who sails into Puget Sound and looks around, uh, what he's describing uh, he thinks he's describing an unspoiled, you know, this is the way it's always been kind of landscape. But what he's really looking at is a few survivors. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, what yeah. I, I mean, what do we think now? There's there's some population estimates that 30 million native peoples across the continent. There's that's one estimate. I mean, there there was this was yeah. a huge, uh, extensive civilization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and and so uh, you know, hundreds of years later, some some white person actually makes it out to uh, you know some inaccessible to him part of the, the of the Americas and sees something that they identify as as a natural environment uh, with very few or, or no people in it. But what he's really looking at is the aftermath of this terrible epidemiological uh, collapse. Um, so anyway, um, but that's a, 
digression from your question. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it is. I mean, it's about thinking about how how we are on this planet. I mean, I I just got back yeah. from Europe and looking at being excited about the uh, the technology and the architecture of the of the Moors of the eight to eleven hundreds or the fifteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. You know, in Spain and what amazing things they did. Yeah. Or even the idea that yeah. we would call uh, the we would say something about the Dark Ages because we're Eurocentric mm-hmm. in that way, right? Where really there was incredible and vast knowledge in these non-European cultures that were still going on, and yet we, you know, we we have these perceptions about what stories we tell. I fell down a I fell down a rabbit hole. <clears throat> um, it's one of these deals where. You know, you you buy a book, and then another book gets recommended. And you, you know, you follow. It only takes like two or three clicks <clears throat> to end up in some really weird places. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a whole, there's a school of thought <clears throat> that that span of time did not exist. That basically, <clears throat> when the year um, 700 rolled around the uh, Holy Roman Emperor <clears throat> decreed that it was now the year 1000. What? So those 300 so, years didn't exist? <laughs> didn't exist, yeah. And and the um, because there's so little evidence, I mean, the reason they're called the Dark Ages is like if you, if you go around looking for documents and you know, all the normal things that archaeologists would would dig up. Uh, there's just not much there from that period, and so um, so there are these guys saying that um, the, the reason for that is that they just sort of pushed the clock forward by 300 years, um, and um, uh, so it's a it's a whole like conspiracy theory historical conspiracy theory on the uh on the internet and um and like like any of these you know they've they've got all of these sort of details worked out for you know to explain away the objections that you or i might make um you know so um uh, so for example they uh according to this theory they also persuaded the um the Ottoman Empire to to make the same change at the same time, um, so that there's no uh, discrepancy, you know, between the calendars. Um, so, uh, uh, they can't really explain things like tree ring evidence. Anyway, it was a, a real uh, eye-opening thing to to stumble into. Well, I'm putting my skeptics hat on for that one, but you know, it, it reminds yeah. me that this uh, this world we live in right now, where we talk about fake news, fake information, mm-hmm. false ideas, um, has always been around, and there have always been um, battles over the narrative. Yeah. So, really interesting book that I keep trying to persuade people to read is "A Culture of Fact" by Barbara Shapiro, uh, which is fairly recent kind of scholarly book about where and how the, the, the whole idea of facts emerged. Um, 
and she's tracing it back to um, the the English legal system and how that worked back in the medieval times when judges had to travel around from town to town and try cases of uh, uh, crimes that had occurred, you know, weeks or months previously. They didn't have any personal knowledge of the people or of the, there's no evidence really. So they had to go on, they had to develop rules of, you know, all of our rules about, you know, we don't accept hearsay evidence, um, impaneling juries, swearing them in, uh, all kind of emerged from that, from that system. And um, so out of that, we get the whole idea of, of facts, which seems like so obvious to us now that we, it's hard to imagine there was ever a time when, uh, when we didn't, didn't know what a fact was, but, um, yeah, but it is true. I, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. put, I'm putting that on my list. I like that. It goes hand in hand with a book that I am just, uh, waiting for the library to get, which I've never read, but it's by the historian Daniel Borston and it's the mm-hmm. image and it's about how the, the culture of, of, uh, non-facts about the culture of fake news about the culture of you know the ptp talks a lot about pt barnum and hucksterism and but it goes right into Mm -hmm. the modern times and it's about how we yeah we have we we want to be um uh we want to be enticed by things that seem and are unbelievable yeah we want to believe in the words of the x-files a population that has a way to to know facts um, is a powerful population, and some people don't want that. Um, so, so there you have it. There's our fight. Looking yeah. at your website, uh, I was uh, you. You talk about being a socio media path, where you you're not going to deny the uh, the fact that the web exists and all these social platforms exist, but you don't want to spend all your time on them because you have mm-hmm. work to do. But so I looked down, I looked at your Twitter feed and I was, and most of it was uh, you talking about new books or your publisher talking about some things, some retweeting, but I was struck by one thing from a year ago. Most of, most who follow me are probably registered to vote, so I won't nag you to register, but I will urge you to support vote riders as a way of helping people who aren't, as well as people who have been purged from the rolls by voter suppression ops. That struck me that that was something that was, uh, that you were moved by that personally. Well, you know, we talk about um, we were talking about Grant earlier, mm-hmm. and the most the most new part of Grant for me, the, the the aspect of that story I was most personally ignorant of was Reconstruction, and all of the shenanigans that went on um, after the Civil War was was officially over to manipulate the way voting worked. Uh, and to make those manipulations a, a structural part of of this of the system, um, and uh, that has never stopped, you know. Um, and um, uh, it's it's on the rise. So um, you know there is a, a pretty uh, kind of ferocious resurgent. Um, really, it's an ongoing uh, part of the the Civil War. Um, that is all about this. Um, it's all about tweaking and manipulating the system 
um, in order to um, to achieve a particular outcome. And it's kind of it's easy to miss. It's uh, it's pervasive. It's all over the place. It's going on all the time. The piece of people who do it are clearly determined, and uh, they never stop. Um, so um, the um, uh, uh, I, I I kind of felt like the most civically useful thing that could be said at that time was, hey, let's support uh, people whose job it is to to counteract that. What struck me about the Grant book, too, was that it, and it was very much that it was uh, people using the rules of the system or, or manipulating the rules of the system in ways that could be uh, allowed in order to take mm-hmm. away the rights of people's votes. I mean, it wasn't just... Right. It wasn't just people with guns standing at the courthouse steps. It was much more insidious than that because it was legal. Well, it's like, okay, fine. The, the slaves have been freed. They count as, as persons now. Uh, effectively, the population of uh, the formerly slaveholding uh, states has just increased by, by a huge amount. Uh, and, and with that increase in population comes an increase in electoral clout in the Senate, the Electoral College. Um, and we're going we're gonna to find ways to use that for all it's worth. Sounds familiar. I think that's yeah. part of the power of that book. It's very familiar. I know you've written about this before, about having been one of the, the first <laughs> Blue Origin um, employees. And you did a lot of work like on the floor, it sounded like. I got to take a tour of the Blue Origin factory a few months back and it's quite a remark it's 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 remarkable it's remarkable to think of people with machinist skills Mm -hmm. creating rocket ship parts that will go into outer space it's 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 mind-boggling to me a little bit yeah yeah well the first building the, the previous building was at 13 south nevada street in soto so you go down East Marginal Way under the by the cement factory there next to this uh, West Seattle Bridge and hang a ride on Nevada Street. That's where the first place was. It's just a single story industrial warehouse. Um, and then I can't remember what year they moved to uh, the, the huge facility down in Kent uh, that you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> But uh, yeah, that's where that started, about 2000 or so. Um, that's where it kind of incubated for a few years. Um, it's probably 04 or 05, maybe, when it moved to Kent. Yeah, I think that sounds right. How do you feel about, I mean, a, a Blue Origin now? I was reading this article in, in The uh, Economist. Bezos argues that human beings either face a future of rationed resources or a future of infinitely expanding possibilities. He wants human beings to make the leap to space and is prepared to put billions of dollars behind this ambition. What What do you think about that sentence? Rationed resources, infinitely expanding possibilities. Do you, do you believe in the second part? Infinitely expanding well, possibilities? Well, there's plenty. There's um, there's plenty of stuff up there. Um, there's plenty of material in. Um, so near-Earth asteroids and so on that, uh, like, grabbing onto that stuff and um, and and processing it, uh, in principle, nothing stops us from making great big habitats up there that 
could be as nice as we want them to be. They wouldn't, it's not like living in a Greyhound bus station it could be living like, you know, in a, uh, a very nice part of the world if it's done right. Um, so, so nothing kind of technically stands in the way of making that, that stuff. And, um, you know, the, uh, uh, it's hard to predict kind of trends in, in population, like the general population explosion seems to be tapering off a little bit. Uh, I'll just say that there's nothing that technically really would stop the construction of, of big habitats like that. <clears throat> that could be very nice places to live. Um, it's just a question of you know money and time and effort. Yeah, where do you come down on that? I mean, the other argument is, no, spend the money on Earth, save the planet. Climate change is going to give us the kind of scenarios that you had in Seven Eves, even though I know it was a moon exploding, but... We should spend our money there. As a futurist, where do you what what do you come down on? You know, my take on climate change is is um, that <clears throat> if you run the numbers on the amount of carbon we've put into the atmosphere by burning coal and oil uh, and and wood, um, it's just unbelievably enormous. Any kind of proposed fixes that are about people changing their individual behavior, like ride your bicycle to work or, you know, recycle your newspapers or any of that stuff is, uh, is not going to make any difference at all. Um, and so I think a lot of times people uh, in the environmental movement want to think in terms of those small individual changes in lifestyle and it's not harmful to, to do that stuff, but it is harmful to to talk yourself into believing that it's going to remove uh, vast amounts of carbon from the atmosphere, which is what we actually have to do to solve the problem. So we either have to, to physically extract it somehow um, or use um, some kind of geoengineering strategy to um, uh, as a kind of tourniquet. Um, to uh, to stop that bleeding, and that's not a super palatable idea to a lot of people. But um, unfortunately, if you look at the uh, look at the actual numbers um, on how much carbon is in the air, um, that's that's where we are right now. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, sure. That was a pleasure, as always. Uh, so, hope you got some, some good stuff. I did, and uh, congratulations on the book. Thanks. You're, I'm sure you're already on to the next one. I don't even try until all of this hoopla dies down. All right, well, take care. Okay, bye-bye. To hear an excerpt from this conversation, along with other features about upcoming speakers to Town Hall, check out my other podcast, In the Moment, hosted by Ginny Palmer, wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Leave a review if you like this podcast. Reviews help generate interest from other listeners. Most of all, people care about what other people, like you, think about the things we do to educate ourselves about this big old world of ours and worlds beyond. Next time, a conversation with Charles Fishman about Apollo 11, but his new book, One Giant Leap, the impossible mission that flew us to the moon, doesn't focus on the astronauts, heroes though they were and are, 
Fishman focuses on the hundreds of thousands of people working in factories and laboratories around the U.S., around the world, who built the rockets, the computers, sewed the fabrics, imagined the technologies that made it possible for people to actually get to the moon. Join me, won't you? And thanks again for listening to At Length.